Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. Would you like to know more? <laughs> Just so you know, I'm 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 Tay. <laughs> and I re I mean, honestly, like, let's be real. That's what our entire podcast is, is you just watched a scene. Would you like to know more? Yeah. I, what and a, we can throw in uh, Kurt, Kurt Wood Smith's actual audio there if you didn't already, Tay. Will do. Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. <laughs> They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. What's going on, cinephiles? Welcome to our podcast on Starship Troopers, if you didn't catch that from Tim's opener. Yeah, thanks for coming back, and uh, thanks for voting on this one. This was honestly a pretty even spread for a while. E.T. really had this in the bag for longer than I expected. We, uh, We figured, given our general feeling we have of our audience, that Starship Troopers would just kind of take this right away but et and even men in black had i think they had a tie lead for a while and then clearly you know the people who love starship troopers were were working during the day or they had they had plans throughout the evening and they got to it later and later in the run and uh it took right over but uh we're very happy about that we're both big fans of this uh the movie club that we're in with some friends talked about this i want to say just back in the spring was this your pick tay this was my pick for the film club yeah yeah. And honestly, it's one of the maybe only films, I think, in Film Club that was unanimously praised, I think, by every single person. Not tooting my own horn. It's just like it was just I don't, a pick. I don't know if we got... There's that There's that one guy in our group who doesn't like most things that we pick, and I'm not sure that right. he liked this. But he may I have come we, around I think we brought it. him around. I don't want to blow up his spot, so we're not going to say who it is, but if you're listening, you know who you are, and you don't like most of the movies we bring to it. Even and I'm still I'm still a little salty about I almost got unanimous approval for broadcast news as it deserves, and uh, and this guy felt it was a little bit. I feel like he called it an after school special, which is Ouch. um, uh, just I don't know if I have words for for how like sacrilegious <laughs> that is in in my view of uh of of cinema. But we're already off the beaten track. We're talking Starship Troopers. Obviously, Tay's a big fan. I'm a big fan too. Uh, I think I came to this a little bit later in life, but uh, let's bring anyone, everyone on board right now before we talk about how we sort of got to this movie. Uh, Starship Troopers is about Johnny Rico, who joins his high school friends in a galactic war against bugs from outer space, and soon comes face to face with both the highs and horrors of a life in military service. Starring Casper Van Dien, Denise Richards, Dina Mayer, Starship Troopers was directed by Paul Verhoeven and released on November 7th, 1997. It's available to stream for Canadians on Netflix right now, so go check it out. Uh, And its tagline, which I didn't know this tagline because there are a lot of lines in this movie that uh, Johnny Rico yells, that uh, Ratchak yells. um, Really, like, there are so many options, and someone put this together. Genocide doesn't compare to this. I I like it. I actually don't mind it, but it... It it nothing is said like that in the movie, which is the weird part to me. They don't say genocide like... in the movie, and it in fact it almost like pulls the rug out from what the movie's doing as a satire. I think by having this on the on the cover. Yeah, yeah, I'd say the closest they get is um, Patrick Muldoon, who plays what's his character's name? Xander, it's a dumb name. Xander. <laughs> Sorry to the Xanders out there. If we have any listeners who are Xanders, <laughs> I, I apologize dearly. Um, he has a line near the end of the film where he says something about we're gonna someone who looks like me is gonna kill your whole race. Uh, so that's the closest they get to recognizing uh, the genocide of their actions. And that's um, when he's about to get his brain sucked out. So we can, yeah, we can kind of you know understand what? where he's at I'll, there. I'll forgive him a little bit for for going that hard. Uh, not, not the worst last words, all things considered. No, pretty good, um, considering that he's a kind of despicable character throughout. Yeah. Not for, like, the wrong reasons yeah. or anything. He's just kind of, like, they paint him as, like, this guy you're not really supposed to like, and they do a good job of it. Yeah, he's he's, he's Mr. Take Your Girl, you know? 
You don't. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm coming off of. We're well, way off the base already. <laughs> I'm coming off of watching the commentary though, and I can't tell you how many times, uh, both director Paul Verhoeven and uh, writer Edward Nomeyer said or like addressed the state of um, the test screenings, where Denise Richards apparently was shredded by everybody for her character's decisions in the film to like leave Johnny and go with Xander, and yet. And oh. and all they talked about was how it was such a double standard held by audiences. And they must have yeah. honestly come back to this point 10, 15 times in the commentary. It was the most repeated thing they said every time Denise Richards wow. was seemingly on screen. Every time the love I mean, triangle kinda, was mentioned. Yeah. That's kind of nice that the production would, would keep defending her. Um, and also, I got to be honest, I think her decisions are... Well, number one, I think the audience assuming that she gets together with Xander is not explicitly there in the text exactly and number two her decision to say listen i have a potential career to fly you know these massive star freighters or i can i can you know just do two two years of service as a pilot and then marry johnny rico a guy with no direction in his life no real skills he does look like a computer made a person to quote uh <laughs> to quote james stacy and how he describes certain actors and actresses um but otherwise, doesn't have much going for him. So I completely respect her choice to say, "Listen, I can be a, I can be a pilot. I can, I can fly things that go at light speed." She even has I like, do the same thing. They even have that really kind of honestly real moment between her and Johnny later in the film, where she's like, "I think I made the best decision for both of us," and she's right. Like they didn't did. have they didn't have a spark or chemistry. They were just high school kids who were into each Johnny, other. Johnny belongs with Dizzy. Yes. And Dizzy's the better choice for him too. Like this is all I don't I I did not expect based on our notes and who we are as people that this is this would be the top of our discussion of Starship Troopers. But let's really dig into the love triangles. No, I'm kidding. We, uh, <laughs> love squares, <laughs> we've Tim. Made our preferences clear here. Yeah, love squares, whatever you want to call it. Um I mean, yeah, there's so much to get into. So yeah, I mean, I'd say from the top, we haven't talked about Verhoeven yet. And so Verhoeven, uh, he's a Dutch, uh, a Dutch director. He did a number of Dutch films uh, in his home country before he sort of crossed over and made a series of movies that I would say directly attack either American or Western institutions in general. And ideology. Right? Uh, so, yeah. So you've got RoboCop. You've got. Um, oh, I am blanking on the on the one with Arnie. The maybe his best one. Total Recall. Um, Total Recall. And uh, and Starship Troopers kind of looking at capitalism, um, police, militarism, uh, Western metropolis culture, uh, things like that. And even, I mean, most recently, just, just last Christmas, he put out Benedetta, which is fairly scathing indictment of Christianity. So he just loves to really push the West's buttons. And uh, and I like I, I think I think he's a wonderful director. I think. We can't really speak to his arc of his Dutch career or even outside of, like, the three or four movies we just mentioned. Yeah, I, I did see Elle at TIFF a few like, several years ago now, but um, mm. I'm not too familiar with his deeper filmography. But I think everything yeah. I've seen him, every film I've seen him do is provocative and intriguing and really pushes the envelope of what you can address in a film. And, like, mm -hmm. he walks a really fine line of being really on the nose and yet coy enough to make pe some people not even see the clear messages in his films, uh, specifically yeah. more uh, right-wing, I would say. Yeah, his satirical films tend to have a bit of a pattern where people deride them in the moment on their surface level and then within a couple years realize what he was doing. And it's always so difficult looking back on these when you watch this. It does feel very obvious that he is showing issues with a culture uh, a highly right-wing militaristic and fascist culture like this but at the same time um here's a little breakdown of some responses at the moment um and i'll link the article that sort of pulled them together to give you a, a broader view of the response to starship but in the new york times janet maslin panned the crazed lurid spectacle as featuring Featuring raunchiness tailor-made for teenage boys, Jeff Weiss in the Desert Deseret News called it a non-stop splatterfest so devoid of taste and logic that it makes even the most brainless summer blockbuster look intelligent. I don't know if she used the word brainless on purpose or not. That's pretty clever um, if she did. 
Roger Ebert, who had praised the pointed political or pointed social satire of Verhoeven's RoboCop, found the film one-dimensional, a trivial nothing pitched at 11-year-old science fiction fans. As we all know, Roger um, Ebert, if he wasn't in the right mood, he's going to rip any movie. Yeah, he's really... You never know what you're going to get with Raj when you go he back. He wrote some fantastic um, reviews, but I think it's mm-hmm. wrong to consider his view as... Or his perspective on films as sacred or anything like that. It's not. He's a person, right? And it just... And I think he was also very much just like, listen, I watched the film once and that's what I got from it. And uh, I got to move on because I'm a professional film critic. I got to watch 10 movies a week, right? At least. Um, so I also don't entirely blame him for just being like, listen... This is this is one look at how films have to be received, um, but not to get too far into that. I do want to address very quickly because we did when when we announced that we were going to be covering this, did get more than one comment from listeners on Instagram um, about how much they didn't really like this movie and how big of fans of the book that they are. And the, this movie is an obvious diversion from the book. We should stay right off the top. Tay and I have not read the book. We're not familiar with the text. And it should also be noted that Verhoeven didn't read it. He read two chapters of the book. I believe he specifically called it boring. Yeah, and then he had the writer, um, Edward Neumeyer, explain him the rest mm -hmm. of the book. Yeah, so this is barely an adaptation, I would say. I'd say it's more, it would even be more akin to, like, how with Blade Runner, they bought the rights to the name Blade Runner because they liked the name and then applied it to... um, you know the sci-fi story do androids dream of electric sheep this movie's original title was something like bug hunt on outpost nine which is a great title uh and then i think it aligned with starship troopers in some way in terms of its plot details so they bought the rights to that verhoven signed on verhoven didn't like the book so i just want to say right off the top that us loving this movie isn't saying it's right in how it diverted from the book and we don't know about enough about the book to really make any calls on on whether it was an intentional adaptation i think it's just very clear like verhoven growing up dutch understanding the role of nazis in his home homeland um he made a movie called um soldier of orange which is specifically about the nazi occupation of the place where he grew up and things like that so i think it's he's pretty in touch very obvious why why he'd be fairly anti-fascist and why in this movie the the military uniforms are modeled after um the nazi party is specifically like you've got neil patrick harris at the end of the movie dressed like an ss officer as a part of the intelligence core of the of the human federation but keep in mind too that a lot of the propaganda techniques that they're using he the, him and uh Neumeier, the writer explained in the commentary that they pulled equally from american and third reich propaganda to kind of blend the two together to kind of create that yes there's obvious fascist iconography in the film but in terms of the ideology at at play here it's a good mix of not just nazi propaganda but american as well and i think that's really important to note yeah yeah i think you're right like at the end of the movie they have that sort of ending um propaganda film and it feels exactly like like what you would have seen um I'd say probably the most accessible reference is like the propaganda films that are in like Captain America, right? Where they would show these shorts before movies and the, the tagline on it is like, they'll keep fighting and they'll win. That feels very American. But I mean, you put that into German, it feel very Nazi esque either. But the the fact is that these propaganda techniques are kind of nonspecific and they work in a vacuum. And I, I think that's part of like you, you listen to the commentary of this, of this movie Tay and uh, Verhoeven was saying that war makes fascists out of us all. So it's not, it doesn't matter whether or not you were German or American or Dutch or anything, making a general comment of the effect of war and the, the arc of Johnny Rico from the beginning to the end. Yes. And I think, and he really wanted to make that point clear too, in the commentary, he said, I'm not like discriminating. I'm not saying like this group of people are bad. He's saying he's commenting on what war does to people and to a society. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really also an important distinction to make. Um, it's also interesting that although he is obviously a Dutch, like he's a Dutch nationalist, but mm-hmm. he identified himself as American throughout the commentary in the sense that he would say, we Americans will use power mm-hmm. if people disagree with us. 
And mm-hmm. so, like, he's not coming at it from, like, like, he's not taking America and looking at them through a magnifying glass and, like, burning a hole in them. He's identifying with them and seeing, because he's obviously lived in America for quite a long time making films there. And yeah. he has some good perspectives as an outsider coming to America and what that looks like to an outsider. And I think that's also a really important perspective to take on all these opinions we mention of his because he isn't a very opinionated guy and that's something we're going to focus on today so he comes from this perspective and i think it's pretty well rounded i don't think he's just indicting something that he doesn't understand Mm -hmm. and i mean on a less serious note is he the master of squibs he he's one of the best uh you can't take anything away from sam peckinpah i'm a diehard believer in peckinpah is the master of the squib uh, Tarantino's pretty good himself uh, but yes this movie uh, where was that stat it had the most uh, blank rounds fired ever up to this point in film history and it all looks pretty darn good yeah so yeah just before we go away just in case anyone doesn't know a squib is basically what you use to mimic someone something being shot by something so it's a small in in theory, and most of the time, safe explosive like little tiny like exploding cap. But they're very dangerous. Would, yeah, they, if they're they're pointing the wrong direction or they're wrong, they're poorly applied, things like that, or someone didn't have padding underneath. You know, people can get bruises, soft tissue damage, broken mm-hmm. ribs, and worse. It is a literal explosion, um, and usually they're on your, they're yeah. like little plates attached to your chest yeah. that explode outward. Yeah, but yeah, if they're mm-hmm. if they're not set up correctly, and they'll have like they'll have like you know they'll have a built in like little blood bag right so you get these bloody explosions whether it's you know that guy in the first scene of robocop who just gets eviscerated by the uh the ed what is it ed 109 Mm -hmm. what's that robot um i think you got it or you know the bugs in this uh or i mean i mean just yeah anytime gets someone gets shot in a paul verhoeven movie there's gonna be a lot of blood flying and you get these mu- multiple explosions um and when we say explosions they're little but they're still an explosion and it's it's the uh maybe over exaggerated nature of things like the squibs that are what we were kind of calling attention to by bringing up those re- those critical reviews earlier people mm-hmm. really focus on like okay, you're going way too crazy on the subject matter. You're you're going way too visual, way too bold. It doesn't make any sense. It's not real. And you're missing the point, I think, if that's the way you're looking at at the blatant violence of the film. It's mm-hmm. much well, more I... about the subtext than the surface level shooting bugs. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the most insidious aspects of seeing this film as propaganda and then layering on top of that it as a satire of of fascism is that the people in this movie, Johnny Rico, Dizzy, Ace, they see these things happen. The first time they go into combat um, is, uh, is on Big K at night, and it's an absolute bloodbath. Uh, and same with all their other engagements, like in... Um, immediately after the next scene when they're back on like a aircraft carrier or wherever they have no mental trauma right like johnny johnny gets his his leg stabbed by that one arachnid they put him in like you know the starship troopers version of a back to tank yeah and it's like 3d printing his muscle back and they're immediately all joking about it so i think one of the most subtle aspects of it and settle is a weird thing to say about this, movie. <laughs> but it's the fact that they don't—they don't have to address any PTSD ever. No one has PTSD. Everyone is missing limbs or has scars, and it makes them cooler. It's something they wear as a as a a medal of honor. But there is absolutely no mental fallout from war, which is obviously one of the more per- pervasive parts of war for survivors. As far as far as of course, I understand it as a non-combatant. I'm not a part of the military. Never have been. Yeah, there's a real contrast drawn from very early in the film between the adults and the youth. Most of the adults have been maimed or uh, limbs have been severed off. uh, Mm -hmm. And we kind of base this off of the high school teachers at the beginning who are all combat veterans. Um, And we start with uh, Michael Ironside's character, uh, Jean Ratchak. Ratchak. who, what a fantastic character just got to say that off the top but he mm-hmm. has an arm missing at the time 
eventually ends up losing a leg as well, right? He loses both his legs and is summarily put down by Johnny yes. Rico as as he as he wanted. And then they also have another teacher who is like who has been blinded by acid, I think. Mm-hmm. So, and she's yeah, she's got like a a Nazi doctor thing going yes. on. Like she's one of the only people with a non-American accent in the movie. Yeah. True, but before you let that go to your head, take the example of the arachnids, a highly evolved insect society. By human standards, they are relatively stupid. They they did say that Argentina was selected as the location, potentially because, not Verhoeven didn't say this, but in reading things online, it's potentially chosen because that's where a lot of Nazis actually fled after World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's another thing they don't specifically touch on, but when you realize that, yeah, like... They're living in Buenos Aires. Um, it's like a white paradise at this point. Yeah, um, they still have Spanish names for the lead three. Johnny Rico, Dizzy yeah, Flores, and, and Carmen Ibanez. Yeah, so it's... I don't know to what extent they're saying, like, oh, they came in and they just sort of adopted local names and the the Aryanness, you know, trickled down into the system. And now at the point where you are, I think it's late. It's... 21st century, 20, right? Is it's it 2023? It's like the end of the 23rd century, or end of the 22nd century. Oh my goodness. Oh, I was way off. Um, that sort of whiteness has trickled down and pervaded every aspect of the society. Not that there aren't people of color in this movie, but there aren't many, and I'd say for being like, they're living in this beautiful place, and it also kind of looks like Southern California, like in terms of like the architecture and, and things like it's that. It's funny you say that, because that's where it was um, shot. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I mean, um, you know, it really seems like Verhoeven wanted, like, um, 90210. Yeah. Right? For, like, the beginning. Look at the casting. Fifth of this movie. You don't Um, have to look much further beautiful people. Yeah, they're beautiful people. They're like these puppets. On another pod, on Blank Check Podcast, they have an episode of this. And the one guy makes the point that, like, Casper Van Dien did this role, and then he went on to play the main character in Team America. Because um, that's what his face looks yeah. like. It's that's insane. So funny. And same, yeah. And same with uh, Denise Richards. Like, I think there's something very straightforward about being like, let's get the most beautiful people to be the subjects of this propaganda film, so you can see yourselves in them. Their faces don't really get scarred. No. Um, really, across they remain beautiful and youthful while still understanding that, you know, I've got this job until they find someone who be- someone better until I die. Um, and I think at, at that extent, too, their acting doesn't matter quite as much because they're not very good actors. And I think that's entirely intentional on the casting of these specific actors. There's mm-hmm. not a ton of chops between this group of main actors in the film. Yeah. And Verhoeven is never going to say something like he casted like lesser actors because of the way they looked is like these gorgeous yeah, that's a bad look vapid people but um yeah. he d- like the it's so intentional and you wonder why such a smart filmmaker is doing this and it's clearly to provide that contrast between what we think and what we see uh that it's mm-hmm. these all these beautiful people and you know maybe it's time that we kind of dive into this overarching idea that the film itself serves as a propaganda piece, right? The whole entirety of the film is operating the same way as a complete propaganda film from this, from like fascist Germany or even world war two era America would operate in the sense we follow a hero's Mm -hmm. journey. We see what they lose. We see what they gain by following the chain of command and by following the order set by the military. And we see them benefit from that. And that makes us believe in the military and want to follow in their steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Johnny gains purpose, right? Because he starts this movie as a kid with no direction. His number one priority is being with Denise Richards, who's, uh, I should start using her character's name. Carmen. Which I believe, Carmen. Okay, yeah, that's why I made that mistake earlier before we start recording. Um, 
He just wants to be with her. He has no direction. His family is obviously very well off, and he's he can go to Harvard, and he can go to Zegama Beach, which is where he's always wanted to go, right? And and he chooses to enter the military just to sort of stay in Carmen's orbit. And then over the course of it, he gets men killed, loses his family, gets whipped, uh, loses the woman he falls in love with, um, but over, despite all those losses, he gains purpose. He gain, he finds what he's good at because he's not really good at anything at the beginning of the movie. And there is sort of like an arrangement of values there that the people don't matter. Like the people, they gave their lives for great things, right? Like people, like again, the, the, the recruiting officer is like more meat for the meat grinder. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of exactly what this is, right? Like they, and, and they even, they address that themselves later in the movie where, ace and johnny are like oh we're the old guys now like some of these kids are fresh out of boot camp and it's just a turnover and a turnover and turnover making their their survival the most unrealistic part right and that's what sort of again belies that's a propaganda that like a lot of people will die but not you that's right you're handsome you're capable you'll step up right and when i say he's not good at anything he is good at jump ball but they also make it clear that his jump ball skills make him a better soldier. That's right, yeah, Which yeah. sort of aligns, it aligns games and war in or a very sickening way. War. But also competition and war, and, but also recognizes that, like, football is the most aligned with the military in terms of, like, American sports culture. Yeah, there's a reason Verhoeven didn't pick any other sport but the most American sport on the planet. Mm-hmm. But also, like, he turned it into this weird gymnastic indoor stadium. It's a little flamboyant. Like, yeah. none of it makes any sense. Like, people are, like, doing these crazy flips and stuff. And there doesn't seem to be a huge strategy. And, like, the clock doesn't work the same as in actual no. football. Like, they run the clock out. There's something yeah, that doesn't it, make it any sense. It's, like, the buzzer at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it does feel like he has zero prospects other than, you know, just going to Harvard and, and being a rich kid. And the movie's like, that's, that's, you have no purpose. That's not going to, you're not going to contribute anything and you won't be a citizen because service guarantees citizenship. That is like the backwards messaging of this world compared to, I don't know, maybe the world that we kind of understand around us is that the people, the wealthy do not have to go to war to become citizens. But if you're not wealthy, mm -hmm. you have to go to war. And yet the labor yeah. class, because they're the ones who do go to war and our soldiers they are actually better respected whereas the wealthy seem to be almost like just kind of skirting around the rules and are looked down upon for that which mm -hmm. was johnny's path because of his parents wealth and like tim yeah. said mm -hmm. he joins the military for carmen and that's kind of end of that story yeah and and you know throughout it like he's just kind of like he's looking for some meaning for some purpose and it's not until people die and the immediate Sorry, is it called the FedNet? Yes. Yeah, the propaganda engine, the immediate turnaround and use of loss of life to to uh, to promote the war and engage the citizens and things like that. But we're getting a bit into our scene there. We don't have to touch on that quite yet. I'd love to just talk very quickly about where this movie stands in the effects yeah, yeah. history, the timeline, because it's kind of right... This is maybe like the last high profile iconic mix of practical and CG when CG was just like it was three years earlier was Jurassic Park. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of, sort of like your first proof of concept for CG under the right conditions and with the right amount of money and the right amount of time and the right experts can work and it can work better than physical effects would otherwise. So his... He did in between prior to this was, I think, Basic Instinct and Showgirls. Right. And before that, immediately before that was Total Recall. Yeah. Total Recall is like your last bastion of like matte paintings, all prosthetics, very creative, like ballooning prosthetics and like versions of Arnold Schwarzenegger's head that can like that are moldable and can be filled with air bladders and stuff. And then this one's kind of like it's Verhoeven using some and others. There are matte paintings in this. There are giant 18-foot models of these starships. I mean, I love, like, the sequence where Carmen and Xander... Carmen's taking that freighter out for the first yeah. time, and she, like, goes within three meters. That looks so it's good. really impressive how 
like, I guess we should say state this from the from the top. The special effects mm-hmm. in this movie look amazing. Yeah, and the CG, like we're saying, like the it's a great one of your last examples of like a lot of money spent on practical effects before you get to like the era of like Lord of the Rings and like twenty forty nine and stuff like that where they get into bigotures again, but. The practical effects look great. The CGI holds up pretty well I, too, especially for yeah. The time. And if you, I don't know, it's not worth watching any of the sequels. Mm-hmm. But if I just kind of browse through some trailers, and the mm-hmm. special effects in this movie blow the special effects of all the other ones away, even though they're obviously later, it just seems like maybe this had the budget and attention to detail of Verhoeven uh, in its favor, uh, and it takes mm-hmm. a whole team of people to come up with ways to do this it's not just like the director it's a really solid creative team that has to come up with ways to blend cgi components which are completely computer generated with models Mm -hmm. with like to scale miniatures there there are so many different things that you're blending together um it actually kind of reminds me of tremors in a way because tremors combined some real worm puppetry with cgi with miniatures Mm -hmm. all in like the same scenes and this does a lot of that with some of the aliens uh there's a i the blu-ray of this i gotta recommend as well i know i do this quite often but the blu-ray is so chock full of cool special features and one of them is you can watch almost every special effects scene with both screens on like up so you can see like with the special effects and what they actually shot and it it's like probably mm-hmm. took me 25 minutes to get through all of them. Yeah, no, it does sound like you you sent me you sent me like a photo oh, yeah. of, of this feature <laughs> last night that we didn't have time to do otherwise we'd put the video on uh on the, on the Instagram. You can you have to like connect through the internet to your Blu-ray player yeah. or something and upload a photo of yourself and they'll put you in Yeah, the you'll movie. be one of the troopers. And you can, apparently can design your trooper. It said in the thing too, which I was like, "What?" It's exciting. I don't know how that would nope. fit in, but like maybe I don't know. Maybe in between today's recording and and you know when we post the episode, maybe we can get some footage of that. Um, yeah, like we should. I mean, there are so many people involved in the effects because you have it on the physical and the CGI side. But I know ILM Industrial Light and Magic, which um, you know is Lucas's from from Star Wars, was involved. Phil Tippett that did yep. a lot of Star Wars is now kind of considered a master. Of, of the practical but side. But there's actually several companies um, that they mentioned in the commentary. It was yeah. a whole stack of companies, including one that I can't remember what the name was, but that this was their last project that they ever did before they went under. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a big production. It was a $105 million budget. Um, so it's not like, not like with the thing where we can just sort of, uh, you know, prostrate ourselves before Rob Bottin. Uh, there's a lot of people involved, and I think it really pulled off. It did not pull off at the box office. Box office pulled in $121.2 because, again, people really saw this for being a, a hollow, saying-nothing blockbuster. If this came out today, do you think you would honestly make $120 million? Um, I don't think it would. Like a version of this, to, I think. No, like if uh, if you I saw, know, I feel like the, the modern day version of this, even if it was Verhoeven, even it, like same movie but maybe updated the special effects and visuals. I think I think it would make more money. I think it would make more than 120 million, but I think it would. They would. The budget would be 60 tops. They wouldn't spend any more on it, but I do think the internet discourse would immediately start the engine turning on the satirical nature mm-hmm. of it. And it would come around a lot faster. Whereas I think it was just, you know, in 97, you just have some critics who are writing stuff and moving on. There's not the space, you know, no one, no one in like, in a major newspaper is going to be given half a page to talk about, wait, 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 this is why Starship Troopers is actually really smart. No, nobody cared, right? Whereas the internet has unlimited space. So even when nobody cares, you can put out an hour long podcast on it. <laughs> Definitely not talking about us. Um, <laughs> and we know that people care and uh and we love you for it we pr- very much appreciate our listeners <laughs> yeah and we love that we can talk about movies like starship troopers yes uh yeah did you want to hop into the scene yeah um so just to kind of summarize what we've gone over so far the film really does use a lot of the imagery and ideologies of fascism to kind of make us see the flaws in it 
And I think that kind of is something to keep in mind as we go through the scene today. Uh, our scene today takes place at 48.08 to 55 minutes, almost on the dot, so within a couple mm -hmm. seconds of that. Um, and after communication with his parents is suddenly cut off, the newly resigned Johnny Rico learns that his family and home have been destroyed, which is Buenos Aires. He quickly falls back under the guise of nationalism and rejoins the mobile infantry. Goddamn bugs whacked his child. The meteor was shot out of orbit by bug plasma that derived from Clendathu, the arachnid's home planet. Nothing lives in what was once called the Latin paradise. Oh, giant, it's us. Buenos Aires has been wiped off the earth. Yeah, this, I mean, maybe mathematically isn't the midpoint, but it's, we, we kind of did it again. This is a little bit the midpoint. It allows but, us uh, to touch I, on so again, many we, things that I, we need to yeah. discuss for this movie. Yeah, and I, yeah, I found it hard to pick one true scene as something that would allow you to talk about the themes and also like effects or action or get all your characters in, things like that. So we went for more like a sequence there's an arc to the sequence, and you could maybe call it three or four scenes, but I think we, we want to get all this Basically, stuff this is the response to Buenos Aires' destruction, and that's kind of how we've come to deem this a, a sequence worth talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, so by this point, Johnny has... It actually happens right after Carmen breaks up with him, and then he goes into live ammunitions combat training where he mistakenly asks one of his troopers to remove their helmet for inspection and he gets shot uh accidentally what is that guy called he's he's the farmer they call him like big or something i'm not sure uh, he's got, but he is big what's that guy's name he is a big guy uh breckenridge, breckenridge. yeah breckenridge uh, has an issue with his helmet johnny asks him to take it off to look at it and then one of the other one of the other troopers the the woman the woman who wants to get into mm -hmm. politics so she needs she needs military service to uh, to be a citizen in order to do that. She slips, pulls pulls down on the trigger, and you get a you get a just a phenomenal prosthetic of that guy as, as the, head the bullets in the camera pan across and it clips his head. His head like moves again. It's a great that's all CG. Know, if you want to call that's it a puppet because because the, the neck moves. That's that? CG. What? They Verhoeven clarified. Oh. That head is all Well, then CG. they made CG to look like Verhoeven's practical effects, which, it, case it, proof of concept, it just worked on... Yeah, uh, that's what I mean about how flawless and seamless some of the special effects work is. Like, it's that's actually such a quick cut, though. Like, it's really hard to actually get a... Mm -hmm. You don't see his face without it being blurred. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, like, yeah, like, that's the kind of thing where I think they could have gone for something more realistic, like a, a person if they're doing all CGI, but they chose to make the CGI look like a practical right. effect. And they did that more it for, was, it turned out was all the more, they effective. did that more on wider shots for a close up. That's actually pretty rare for this era of CGI, but yeah, again, why I made that yeah, assumption for a two second shot though, I guess it still would make yeah. somewhat sense if they thought they could do it. Mm -hmm. They did it. And it's well, executed. I also want to note I also want to note that I think um, he has Breckenridge has a good point on the helmet because if you're watching in the second half of this movie, every time Michael Ironside is wearing that helmet, he can barely see out of it. It did not fit his head properly, and it's coming down over his eyes all the time. And when you watch for it, when people talk and their jaw comes down on that chin strap, it pulls the helmet down. So like it's a it's almost more of a prop malfunction than it is because like I as I understood I did read very quickly on this because we talked about how the whipping scene that results from this is something they really wanted from the book and I I did a quick Google search I guess in the book it has something else to do with like Johnny moving his visor to make him better at at the skirmish that they're in so it is still some sort of helmet based oh, okay infraction. so it's not quite the same um but um. I, I just I'm on Breckenridge's side. Those are poorly made helmets, and I, I bet he couldn't see. But anyway, and so yeah, so Johnny then is forced to endure punishment for this, which in this society means you're either being hanged publicly or you're being whipped in a public. Uh, and they, they well, ceremony. they call it administrative administrative punishment. punishment. There you go. <laughs> and after this, he figures that he is not meant for this line of work. He joined for the wrong reasons and. 
uh, which was for Carmen, and he has now gotten one man killed, and uh, the woman who killed him resigned as well after the incident, which is mm-hmm. done in a really nice visual yeah. shot, not not spoken of. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of uh, Casper Van Dien's better parts of the performance where he's that is his best he's both angry and holding back tears and then you see his line of sight change as he sees the woman leaving through the window in like the command tent um it might be the highlight of his performance in this i think it is and you know what a lot of the scenes he has with clancy brown i think are really strong Mm -hmm. and maybe he actually did cite clancy brown as like one of his biggest acting inspirations like years later Um, He said Clancy Brown and Michael Ironside still, he hears them in his head all the time when he's acting. And that that makes a lot of sense. Shout out Clancy Brown, Mr. Krabs. Hello, I like money. An iconic voice actor. (laughs) Uh, And really wonderful uh, character actor too. I love when I can see his face as much as I love SpongeBob. Mm -hmm. um, When you see Clancy Brown's face, it's just like, he must have a big head or something. It's just beautiful to look at he's got so much he's, to see he's got he's got a big pearl yeah face. yeah it is very pearlmanish yeah. but that scene's also excellent because you have like the commanding officer like turn his head away like without saying anything and then clancy brown's like just rips up the document his resignation document yeah so we did we did jump ahead a bit there i just i wanted to discuss very briefly um both what you think and how you think the movie is framing it Johnny reasonable in resigning yes. here? I think yeah. I would. <laughs> right? like I, just, I mean, I mean, I think like, you know, in any movie setting, I love to think of myself as, you know, not a quitter. But I mean, if I wasn't there for any good reason anyway, and then I got a guy killed um, and then I, you know, he takes his licks, even though he plans to leave anyway, does, you know, sort of leaves honorably, I guess you could say, in terms of their society and what they think honor is. Uh, but then knows like he's got a safety net he can go back home his parents want him back they're just glad that he didn't get killed and he can go to harvard he can go to zegama beach i think it's all set up as very reasonable why he would leave and not i don't think they're piling too much shame on him no i actually think right like dizzy gives him a hard time that doesn't even affect him that much though like dizzy says something pretty harsh she says you take that stroll down washout lane you're only proving one thing johnny what's that diz that you don't have what it takes to be a citizen. And he seems like maybe a little rattled by that, but his mind is not changed. He is going home. He's still quitting. He still feels responsible for Breckenridge's death. And he's ready to go home. And the call with his parents, I've always found borderline comical. Um, it starts off with the dad being like, Johnny? Dad? Where's your uniform? Bill? she's like shh don't don't ask it's kind of and then the mom like chastises him and it's got like that like 50s parenting Mm kind of almost like schlockiness or don't talk like that you just come on home talk things out we love you son well yeah and there's also like a moment where they're like a bit of like future blending of technology where like the mom answers and then she's like she's like oh honey pick up it's johnny and he picks up and like the screen seamlessly goes to like split screen video calling and they're both in different parts of that weird metal and glass uh like home that they live in it's a home but like the doors that they have on it that's like it's a facility wherever they were filming the doors are not home doors no that 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 was a house that's disgusting. I'm sorry to the rich person who lives there. That's an absolutely gross house, and I hate its doors. Um, <laughs> it was in L.A., Verhoeven said. There's a recurring thing in this movie about no privacy of communication or access to information. Oh, and I yeah. don't know if it was yep. just like, I don't know if it was intentional or not. Because like, there's a thing where they're getting their grades, and you have to get your grades on a big screen. And then if your friend is Neil Patrick Harris... He'll also make it so your grade takes up the whole screen. 35%. Very nice. Look at that. 35%, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And then when they get like the military letters, which are little like CDs, they have to watch them like in front of other people in their bunks. And then when he gets the call, so like basically Dizzy chews him out. And he's like, no, no, I'm going. I'm here for the wrong reasons. I got a man killed his like super commanding officer comes over and they're like, your call's gone through. You can take it over here. And there's just like a widescreen TV in their, in their, like the bunk room barracks. Yeah. And 
he just takes it well taught while everyone else is around and i don't know to esther more if that was just a design choice or like they wanted to be feel futuristic but i think there's also something you can infer there about the fact that like nobody gets private communications no one's information is is um is protected or confidential and that might go hand in hand with all the sense of like equality and lack of privacy mm-hmm. that we see in other ways throughout sprinkled throughout the film too yep. right true true very famously uh nude movie um verhoven i guess he wanted that to be a part of robocop where he has a co-ed changing room and it's just very background and in terms of i mean relative to verhoven it's rather subtle so it feels like people didn't get in in that one so he has the very famous co-ed nude shower scene which he famously got naked for himself after the story everyone loves to tell yeah verhoven got naked behind the camera to make everyone in front of the camera comfortable i do think when you say it's an equitable society it should be noted that like they do not do full male nudity in it that's right um there's a lot more female nudity in it so even when you consider this being an equal arrangement it's it's not i don't think that that's on verhoven though i don't think that they would have allowed allowed some frontal male nudity in the in the scene they probably couldn't get any of that in there anyway but I, I think important thing to know, but that that's a good little diversion. It's a good way to work in maybe one of the more famous stories about this movie in terms of the the way they communicate too, right? That everything's open. There are no secrets in this society. He, uh, and, he had a great quote about censors, though. It was something like, it's harder to get a bare breast past censors than a body full of a body riddled with bullets. Yeah. I mean, the footage of the Mormon uh, outpost on planet k or wherever planet p is uh still like shocking like again yeah, it's great prosthetic works you have these horrific frozen expressions on these settlers faces as their bodies are in pieces and their their heads are, are in chunks and stuff like that and uh i think yeah i think verhoven especially as a as a european as all europeans are super aware of us in the west being like any form of sexuality will get you a get you an r rating yeah, you called americans puritans on several but accounts. you can do a lot of gore and a lot of violence and still keep a pg-13 so long as you only have one f-bomb not used in a sexual manner either. oh yeah you can't do that that's yeah. not what the f-word means anyway so he's talking to his parents on the on the phone call and they're like yeah you can come back because again i get that their only worry was like their son's gonna go in he's gonna get maimed at best or killed so the fact that he wants to come back when he's still alive great they've still got their son and then I love how they do it where it just gets really dark on the screen and they're like, Oh my, what's that? Looks like rain. This time of year? Sure is dark. Your transmission has been terminated due to atmospheric interference. That's very fast rain. Yeah, and then, um, and then it just cuts out. It cuts and great. you don't actually have any information about it for, I want to say 20 seconds. Yeah. Before the FedNet releases, like, a produced film with a, a rolling body count. And um, already rendered, like, graphics about how the asteroid was yeah. redirected by the bug planet to, like, hit Buenos mm. Aires specifically. The manufacturing of this seems fishy at best, I would say. Yeah, and, like, yeah, it ta- in as little time as it takes for Johnny to go from the barracks to start walking towards, what is it, Washout Lane? Mm-hmm. What do they call it? it Washout Alley? She calls it something like to, that. To, yeah, to leave to leave the military service definitely 100% for good. They announced that Buenos Aires has been has been uh, taken right off the face of the earth. And at first, he's not sure where it is. He thinks is that Geneva because I think that's where it's supposed to be that the Federation has like their big meetings. Yeah. Um. And uh, and then they realize it's Buenos Aires. Dizzy says that's us. And um, you you make a good point in the uh, in the notes. I just sort of consider it as as like a revenge thing, right? He wants to get back at the bugs for taking his family, but you make the note too. Perhaps he realizes that's what it would have happened if he was back home anyway. He would be dead if it were not for the military. I think, yeah, and that's not said outright. And I think that well, yeah, and that's why I kind of that's my speculation on the on that reaction. But I do think mm-hmm. that that carries some weight if you think about how well I think about how I would process it and just thinking about like. I could have also been there if I had left a day earlier kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so you, you process that and you kind of like come up with this narrative in your head that like, I would, I should be dead anyways. I have nothing left to live for. I'm all dedicated to the military now. Mm-hmm. I can totally yeah. see and that I mean, working that's... in this society very effectively with everything else going on around you. Yeah. So yeah, then he goes back and he says, I want back in. I didn't learn 
one mistake and I made another, sir. You made your decision, son. And they're like, you already signed your form. He's like, I want back in. Sir, my family, my whole family was in Buenos Aires, sir. Is this your signature, Rico? Sir, yes it is, sir. Doesn't look like it to me. My whole family was in Buenos Aires. And then they're kind of like, oh. And it's I only think at that read point it. they changed their mind about reinstating yeah. him. Yeah, and I think you can, well, you can read it immediately as them being compassionate and being like, listen, this guy has has a foothold in the war. And it's like, no, this is, he is the perfect product of their propaganda. This is the best possible thing that could have happened for a soldier. You see Clancy Brown and the commanding officer exchange that yeah, look. We've sold this guy for life. This guy is ours, right? He has nowhere to go back to. He has a perfect motivation. He will never, he will never stop wanting to kill bugs. So like they didn't let him back in. Cause they're like, we feel your loss and want to give you a way to address it. They're like, no, 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 no. you're a perfect soldier. Yeah. And it kind of comes full circle. I did want to mention this. I know it's out of way out of our scene, but he sees Clancy Brown at the end after he's like far surpassed him in rank. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point he's, he's his commanding officer point. but then by the end of the film um, he becomes a lieutenant and they have like a moment of like recognition at the end which I always thought was pretty mm-hmm. beautiful and you just Private see how, Zim. how far he, he captured comes. the brain bug yes yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah he, he re-enlists and then we get more FedNet right where essentially Sky Marshal Deans, they they hold they hold uh, the Gen- Geneva Federal Council makes their plan to attack Clendathu. It should be noted that FedNet is the series of propaganda commercials that mm-hmm. kind of are Would you like to projected on the on like supposedly what they see on television or on their computer screens. Yeah. So they show that they also you get a, you get a little bit of Neil Patrick Harris as Carl coming back. Um, his latest development in in, mil- in military intelligence or sorry games and theory is uh, just this little this little fun little tip that if you really want to take a bug down you gotta go for this for the the stem stack no the nerve stem yeah yeah your basic arachnid warrior isn't too smart but you can blow off a limb and it's still eighty six percent combat effective here's a tip aim for the nerve stem and put it down for good. Would you like to know more? The nerve stem. And then is that followed right after by the kids squishing the cockroaches? Yes. Right. So that was going to be my shout out for a little bit was the actress playing the mom. They give her like a half second cut of her laughing maniacally and clapping, watching her children squish cockroaches. Yeah. Um, which I just, I think it's phenomenal. Like, it's her and the editor working together. It's perfectly placed. I, I, I really love it. So the Verhoeven said that the kids squishing bugs scene was something they had to fight the studio to keep in. The war effort needs your effort. At work, at home, in your community. Uh, just that well, part. Like, were they, was it about, like, were those real cockroaches? Because some of them were moving. I don't think they were real cockroaches, but the studio didn't okay. l- didn't think it was necessary. And I and Verhoeven was like, I, I think it's very necessary. Yeah. Because I, I don't, I, I think it's necessary. I love all the sort of FedNet kids stuff. There's another one where all the kids are fighting over a, a rifle. Yeah. Um, I think that's all great. But, um, no, and I, I mean, yeah, I felt a little bad for the cockroaches. As you guys, if you guys are longtime listeners at this point and remember way back to Nausicaa, I was a big fan of those ohms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I like those bugs. And it's something that's hits me more and more these days when bugs are not necessarily aggressors. And in movies, people just kill them outright. I, I saw, I went, uh, I went to see Lightyear last month with a, with a, a nephew. Um, and in that there are, there are, there are, there's a natural population on this planet they end up with that are like big insects. And I mean, they do have red eyes and they look menacing. They just kill them with abandon and like, wow, no one, there's no bug attack first. And I really have a hard time not seeing that as it happens now. Cause it happens a lot. So it's almost like Starship say, Troopers. Yeah. Bugs are a part of our world. Right, the spider in your room is eating way worse bugs, and he's just being a friend to you. So I just wanted to say that, like, you know, honestly, like, if 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 
the spider was the size of an arachnid and it punched a hole in your leg yeah i would definitely kill it but not until then well another big diversion well, no that you don't really, you don't want to know more <laughs> that really begs the question right uh you and i talked about it a bit before recording today like there's no proof that the bugs actually sent this asteroid to Buenos Aires. So could it potentially be the case that the like people of Earth have decided to, to refuel their propaganda machine? They send an asteroid to wipe out one of the wealthiest places on Earth in order to yeah. gain this sense of like further nationalism by further denigrating a foe, an enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I believe it's called a false flag operation, right? You basically attack yourselves to motivate a uh, response against an enemy. Yeah. Um, and they do, we actually address this in our sequence. There's this part where um, there's a reporter who's sort of reporting on the uh, upcoming attack on Clindathu. You're on. No one here in the AQZ knows exactly when the invasion of Clindathu will occur, but everyone's talking about it, and the talk says tomorrow. Here's a bunch of MI kids that look like they could eat bugs for lunch. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. And he's sort of just trying, he's at like the military base, he's saying no one knows when it's going to happen, but we, we think it's soon, etc. And then like, almost like he's filling for time, he's like, he, he makes some point about... Some say the bugs were provoked by the intrusion of humans into their natural habitat. That a live and let live policy is preferable to war with the bugs. Let me tell you something. I'm from Buenos Aires and I say kill them all. Yeah! Johnny cuts him off and says, I'm from Buenos Aires and I say kill them all. So again, whether maybe it was an asteroid that naturally occurred, maybe the humans did it. The point of the propaganda machine is that you can't know. You will never know. It's a control of the of this actual truth. I'm sounding like other podcasters now, and I don't I really don't mean to. We're just talking about Starship Troopers. Um, but but I think yeah, I, I think it is worth knowing that like it. I, if I have it right, like the sort of general timeline of this entire arrangement is that humans went out mining. And they ended up on Clindathu or the Clindathu system at some point. They were attacked by bugs, making them the invaders, the humans. They set up this quarantine zone where they basically knew there'd be more bug activity within it. And then the bugs wipe out and like, and they have skirmishes ongoing. That's how you like Michael Ironside has no arm. That's how there are casualties and, and maimings and, and things like that. But it's not an outright bug war until they attack Buenos Aires. Until there's a, a strike on Earth. Yeah. And again, I don't know why I have to qualify this, but I do feel like some people out there are like, are like, well, maybe the bugs did attack. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe we, the point is that you can't know. And this comes back to that idea that I said at the start of our scene discussion, where the whole film operates itself as a propaganda movie, a video. So mm-hmm. we, the reason why we don't get like a different perspective and understand that there's, malice to the society or there's like an there's like people working below the surface to kind of make all this happen like little puppeteers we don't yeah. get any of that information because it's a propaganda film mm-hmm. this is a so yeah, uh, most, this is a fascist movie yeah and the most that you do get the closest i think you get to behind the curtains is when they do talk to carl later at the and he's end. like oh you guys were you guys were on planet p i'm sorry you had to be there etc because like it was part of like a counterintelligence operation and it does it feels like you could very easily suggest that like carl probably knows more about the buenos aires attack 100 other people 100 but you never will know um so essentially, like over the course of this sequence, you get this galvanization of Johnny Rico into the ideal soldier. And the ideal soldier is certainly capable. His jump ball skills make him a great soldier. He went through training um, at, at the outpost that makes the toughest guys. He ends up with the roughnecks who are the toughest of the toughest. But I think the key thing that this shows is that the most important part of the soldier is the motivation. And the motivation is a direct result of carefully developed propaganda. And I think it's a great example of the sort of fascist um, ideology that's being skewered by Verhoeven and the writers of this movie. Well said. I think that puts a nice bow on this. I think so. There's, again, so much more we could talk about. I mean, the one other note that I loved in this sort of idea is that, um, you know what, maybe maybe I'll make this my shout-out, actually. Do you want to jump into shout-outs? And if you want mine, you can take it. Go for it. Yeah. 
I one thing that I noted was that I mean, and there there are multiple factors in this, even within the context of the movie. But like, you've got that first invasion of Clendathu that goes so horribly, and it wipes out so many members of their ranks. But the immediate next one, which I believe is on Tango Eurelia, goes extremely well. Right? There's there's a place that they invade in between Clendathu and Planet P. Um, but basically, once you have that first wave has been thinned, every single following um, thing gets easier and easier, seemingly. And I think, number one, it's the propaganda thing, the fascism thing being like, you'll get better as a soldier, it'll get easier. But number two, I think it suggests or it infers that there is a weak cast of soldier. You have to just get them grinded through the meat grinder. And once they're through, once you're at the Rico level, even just in his second engagement, you'll be fine, right? There just there has to be some cannon fodder. And you see how fast he's able to be promoted because of that system and that way of yeah. doing things. Yeah. Because basically just, everybody gets little... wiped out. There's three people yeah. left from their group at the end of it. It's just mm-hmm. him, Diz, and Ace. Yeah. It's this implication that like there has to be cannon fodder and they just kind of had to do big K to get the weak ones out of them. And then you can move on. You can join the Roughnecks. Everyone who dies in the Roughnecks, you'll replace them. You know, they end up being among the most veteran soldiers. I don't know what the timeline is between any of these attacks, but you can say within four military engagements, which is an insane turnover. Yeah. So that that's something that stood out to me. It was just like Big K is horrific. Every following one, they're almost having fun, right? They, they're making friends. He's, he's jumping onto tankers backs and like playing jump ball and stuff like that and i think that's that's got to be very intentional i think so i think it's a good point i like that um my shout out it's actually gonna be something like a little it's very small it's a almost unnoticeable part of the background but at the graduation when they are all finishing high school and they're and uh he's sharing a dance like kind of he starts dancing with Diz, but then he kind of turns to carmen and dances with her the song that they are playing is actually a David Bowie song, which they got permission to rewrite the lyrics for. And the song, Never Been to Oxford Town, the lyrics are altered. And according to uh, the writer, Neumeyer, he said that this is the only clue that we provide for the actual date of the film because the lyrics say the end of the 23rd century. That's really cool. Yeah, isn't that That's awesome? really neat that anyone would notice that, stuff like that. And also, like, the work that must have gone through to eventually probably get through multiple agents and studio reps to get Bowie's permission and to say, yeah, okay. I don't think Bowie was an easy get ever for any... I can't imagine he would for be. whether people wanted... I know he was really tough, especially uh, after maybe, like, Labyrinth or something, he kind of became, like, I don't want to, like, be in movies, really. Like, don't ca- don't mm-hmm. try and hire me as an actor. And I think he yeah. also kind of had that, like, he held his music very sacredly, and he only really let it be used, you know, occasionally by certain filmmakers and by certain projects. So I thought this was a really cool thing that they, like, pre-planned and had that kind of figured out, and it just floats in the background there. It's just for you uh, if you're really paying attention, and it's just that... It's it's one of the questions that you're kind of dying to know, and it, the movie doesn't give it to you, except in a really subtle way like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I did not know that. I never would have noticed it. So uh, you're welcome, everyone out there, for uh, this is what you get for wanting to know more. <laughs> now you know more. That's directly from um, the commentary. So Yeah. And then, uh, okay, so before we get to our recommendations, next episode's movie, heading into September, we're doing... Uh, so we just did non-horror alien movies. We're doing non-horror A24. Um, so don't worry, horror fans. October is going to be a really full month. Tay and I wouldn't let it pass like that. And we will fit in horror versions of these within the remainder of this season or the beginning of next season. You know we're always going to come back to horror. But for the time being, we're going to look at non-horror A24 movies. So make sure you keep an eye out for our vote on instagram it'll come up like in the in the first week of september where we're going to have you vote on a few um horror options for a24 non-horror options it's looking like right now we'll be doing florida project first reformed moonlight and swiss army man so we got some great weird and and 
prestigious options and a lot of different directors that we'd love to talk about. So we'll see what you guys think. Bring it on. Um, Any of them. But our selection, which uh, we're very excited about, I'm I'm very excited about it. Uh, We're talking Uncut Gems by the Safdie brothers. Talking Adam Sandler, uh, Julia Fox, Diamond District, Gambling, Kevin Garnett, the NBA, Celtics. Oh, man. It's a good episode. Um, So make sure you check that, that out in September. And as for now, our recommendations based on Starship Troopers, you know, this is obviously a... um, an iconic satirical film. I went with another one, another one from our last season in our film club too. Uh, Being there directed mm. by Hal Ashby from 1979, starring Peter Sellers. Um, it's a real skewering of the way that people, especially rich people can just hear what they want to hear, especially when they're looking at a mirror or they're looking at a total absence of any sort of output or reflection even. Um, I had never seen this movie before. We talked about it in the film club. It's very funny. It's super interesting. Like so many satires, it's just becoming more applicable and more interesting. Um, What's the year on that one, Tim? What's What's the year on that one? 1979. There you go. So uh, definitely check out Being There. Check out the show notes to see where you can watch it. Uh, Tay, what's your recommendation today? Uh, I wanted to have a fun connection. And when I was looking up some of the crew... I found out that the composer, uh, Basil Pouladoris, who's actual, whose daughter is actually an, uh, featured in the film, uh, she's the performer at their graduation ceremony, which is kind of a cool other connection with this composer. Uh, but he did films like uh, Hunt for Red October, Robocop, uh, Conan the Barbarian. But one of my favorite movies growing up was actually the slapstick film Hot Shots Part Deux, the 1993 film mm-hmm. by Jim Abrams. I think it's one of the best parody films, if not the best parody film of all time. I think Spaceballs and Hot Shots Part Two are very close. I think it's far better than it's than the first Hot Shots, which is also pretty rare. Um, it stars Charlie Sheen. Um, it's ridiculous parodying Rambo and hundreds of other action movies. So definitely check this one out mm-hmm. if you uh, are looking for a new way to your funny bone because this it's wild uh, level of slapstick humor it's it's like an unprecedented amount and it almost feels overbearing at times like how every single line is a joke yeah yeah so there you go two real um different versions of comedy being there and uh, hot shots part two so make that a double feature and uh, let us know what happens to your brains uh that evening uh, we'd love to hear about it hopefully they don't get sucked out like xander's yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, so you can find us SSC Pod on Instagram. Please uh, take part in the votes there. Uh, comment if you have a thought on the films that we're talking about, something that we didn't cover, something that you think we got wrong. Uh, we, we love some engagement. And if nothing else, uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a review on iTunes. It'll do us a lot of good. And uh, if you have a favorite episode, share it with a friend. Get them on board. Um, I mean, do you want to know more really could just be the tagline for 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 this podcast and uh and i think we deliver on that there you go you got everything you needed and just remember the only good bug is a dead bug i don't know if that's true but uh it's in the movie we'll see you in september bye everyone